This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Pretty much everything in our society was created with human intelligence, right? Everything. So if we can amplify our intelligence with machine intelligence, we can also apply it to basically all aspects of our life. And the first thing we should worry about is not, by the way, the machine taking over the world, but we should worry about who controls those first machines. Think about your least favorite political leader, just for a moment. Don't tell me who it is, so we can keep this apolitical. But just now imagine that that person is the first to have control over this incredibly intelligent machine so they can impose their will on everyone else. How does that make you feel? That's Max Tegmark asking a crucial question that almost never gets asked. Max and I have had some interesting conversations over the years about his work in cosmology and mathematics, but now he's raising questions that are a little more down-to-earth. Like, how can we get control of artificial intelligence? And with his students at MIT, he's developed an app that tackles another pressing question. How to give consumers of the news a broader range of choices than those that are fed to us by the algorithms that act like they know us better than we know ourselves. This is great that you could be on the show today. I'm, you know, you have so many interests, so many, so many examples of your curiosity. We could talk for days and days and not cover all of them. But one fits perfectly with the theme of the show, which is communication, because you are developing this really interesting app. Tell me about it. Yeah, if we human beings are going to make good decisions on this planet, right, we need good communication. We need good information. And I feel that the news we're getting fed with are doing an ever worse job on giving us this. So I felt I needed a COVID project to keep myself busy, to not go stir crazy during the lockdown. So I worked very hard, helped also with by some awesome MIT students to build this site called improvethenews.org. And the idea is just that we're not complaining about the news. We're just trying to make it better. One key idea of it is, you know, when I decide what to eat, I don't want to do that just impulsively because, oh, there is this chocolate pudding. And before I know it, I've wolfed it down. I want to do it deliberately by thinking through what I would like to eat. And that's exactly the way I would like to consume news as well. But if I go to Google News or any news site, really, it's exactly the opposite. They have this machine learning that learns to predict exactly what my impulses are and what I'm going to click on at the spur of the moment and keeps feeding me that. And as you know, Alan, I mean, this is precisely the thing which has caused these ridiculous filter bubbles where our society is getting so polarized that everybody lives in their little parallel universe where they are isolated from other opinions. The idea with this site is exactly opposite, that you can come in and think through more deliberately what topics do you want to hear about. And if you're interested in news written from political slants that are not yours, see what people you disagree with read, there are these sliders where you can just pick. Do you want to see right? Do you want to see left? Do you want to see pro-establishment? Do you want to see anti-establishment? And um, I'm really hoping that this can empower people to help them instead of just 
you know, manipulate them into clicking on ads. Let me try to understand this a little better. At the moment, we're getting news online, partly as a function of algorithms that see where we've gone before and tend to give us more of the same, hoping that that's what interests us and will keep us glued to the screen and keep clicking. But yours is different because it gives you a choice. Now, that, that I, that's what I want to ask you about. How are they different? Because how many people do you know want to hear the other point of view? There are an awful lot of people who just want to hear their point of view over and over again. Yeah, that's a great, great point. You might worry, does this just amplify people's filter bubbles? Well, you, But, you know, Daniel Kahneman did this really wonderful research showing that there are two different w- ways we make choices. Fast thinking and slow thinking. Yes, exactly. The fast thinking, thinking is exactly if, there, if I'm at a party and there is this chocolate pudding and I just instinctively grab it with that. And it, it's a sort of nonverbal thinking. It's very quick. That's what he calls system one. And that's how we get fed news today, right? Because if you go if you go to some news site and it's free, of course it's not free. They're, the company is charging money, but not to you, but to the real customers, their advertisers. And then they have machine learning that figures what are you most likely to click on. The other kind of thinking is what Daniel Kahneman calls the slow thinking or system two. That's when you take a step back and reflect a little bit. You know, what do you really want to eat? Do you want to eat more healthy food or do you want to eat more chocolate pudding? Verbal thinking, the, the way you sort of talk things over with yourself. So what we're trying to do here is not micromanage and tell people what to read, but we're trying to make their slow thinking get more power over what news they consume instead of it being their fast thinking. I'm getting from what you're saying that the algorithms that are feeding us what we seem to want are responding to our impulsive moves and giving us more of what we choose when we choose impulsively. And you're giving us a chance to choose more deliberately. Exactly. And exactly. And I actually have a bit more faith in humankind than maybe some others. And uh, there's a lot of research suggesting that people in general like to hear other perspectives also, as long as they're respectful and not insulting. The problem is, if you just go out yourself in the wild west of internet news and try to read some opposing news, you're going to come to a site which is optimized for in the impulsive clicks of the people you disagree with. So they'll have incredibly provocative titles and maybe a very offensive um, language, which will turn you off, right? Whereas if you're sitting next to someone on an airplane who you disagree with and, and they actually give you a nuanced explanation of how they think, that's a whole different ballgame. I once was sitting next to somebody in an airplane who got so offensive, I finally said, would you like to step outside and say that? <laughs> they didn't get it. <laughs> but, you know, the, the gold standard, I think, is if, if you look at more nerdy publishing, the kind we do in science, we disagree with each other all the time. Of course, right? sure. You know, I have colleagues who think that something random happens every time you look at something, according to quantum mechanics. I happen to think that's just dead wrong. It's called the collapse of the wave function. So we have totally different worldviews, but we can have very civilized conversations. You're the only person I know who makes something clear by using quantum mechanics as an example. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, you're the only one I've ever met. (laughs) 
Is there any data on the number of people who routinely watch MSNBC who also watch Fox News and vice versa? There, I have looked at the data and there are very few, but I would actually go as far as saying that neither of those two sites are particularly respectful of those with the other point of view. But what I've discovered is quite wonderful. We, we download 500 new sites all the time. And uh, there are a lot of, of course, very virulent and aggressive sites, even much more than the ones you mentioned. But there are also a lot of smaller sites, both on the left and on the right, that are quite respectful and, and nuanced. And most people never hear about them because they don't appeal as well to people's impulsive click instincts. They don't get a lot of web traffic. And so one of the hopes we had with this project, ImproveTheNews.org, is that we can help more people find these more nuanced sites, you know, where you can find out what people you don't agree with are actually saying in, in a respectful way. So do you use artificial intelligence to separate the respectful from the disrespectful or what? How do you, or do you have humans doing that? How do you do it? If we try to do it all with artificial intelligence so we can make it free because we don't want any ads here. And this has actually been the most fun part for my inner nerd <laughs> as an MIT researcher, right? That, that you can actually do it. Uh, because my day job, you know, as you know, I spent most of my career doing physics. But then in the last few years, I shifted over my MIT research to be on machine learning. And so we have, we have amazing algorithms now for classifying news articles in different ways to have machine learning automatically discover what is opinionated and what is neutral. How can the machine distinguish between those two? That's a great question. It cannot by itself because machine learning just isn't good enough yet. But what we did was we crowd, first crowdsourced this. So we ran this survey in the cloud on using what's called Amazon's Mechanical Turk. So we paid large numbers of people to just read stuff and rate how opinionated different sentences were. And, that, and then we take this set and data set and we have trained machine, we train machine learning algorithms to try to replicate what the people said was opinionated versus neutral and factual. And then the nice, once we can do that, then we can scale it to automatically have it classify all the news all the time. So this is very interesting to me. This gets into the whole question of artificial intelligence. I know you're concerned both about what the advantages of artificial intelligence can be, and I, I would go so far as to say what the dangers might be. Am I, am I right about that? You're absolutely right. You know, but it, when, when people come and ask me, hey, Max, you know, artificial intelligence, should I be excited or scared? You know, my answer is both. <laughs> but it's not really that different from how I would answer if you asked me if, about fire, if you should be excited about it or scared about it, if you should be you know, for it or against it. I'm pretty confident that you're for using fire to keep your home warm in the winter and you're against using it for your neighbor to burn down your house, right? The only difference between fire and artificial intelligence is that these two technologies differ in how powerful they are. That's what I, I've heard you talk about. The difference between if you make a mistake with a fire, you can fix it. You can throw water on it. If you make a mistake with a nuclear weapon, you can't, you can't pick up the pieces and put them back together again. You're kind of stuck with the, with the mistake you made. And it's probably 
just as bad or conceivably worse with artificial intelligence 100, 200 years from now when it's so good, we don't know how it does what it does and it's doing things in our lives that we don't necessarily like. Exactly, or even even already, the filter bubbles were very much a gift to us from artificial intelligence, right? Facebook and other companies figured, let's just put in these artificial intelligence algorithms to increase our ad, increase our ad revenue and show people what they click on, you know, what could possibly go wrong. And then a lot of things <laughs> went wrong. And now we can't really seem to undo this. So I, you 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 summarize it really really well there. I I think that what's happening is science and technology of course keep progressing and getting ever more powerful, right? So we go from technologies like the knife and fire which are not very powerful where it was fine to just learn from mistakes. So we're stuck in this mindset that we're just going to do the same again with nuclear weapons with future very powerful AI. But what I'm saying is, no, the more powerful the tech is, the more important it is to become now proactive, not reactive, and think through in advance, you know, what might go wrong. So help me out with this problem. First of all, to start with, for some people, it might be a surprise to realize that machine learning is different from programming a machine to do something. It's, it's letting the machine learn on its own the way a child learns, takes in huge amounts of data, puts them together and, tr- and is able to solve problems you didn't even present it with. Am I right so far? That's exactly right. So you, many people, I think, still um, fall for this fallacy that machine, that computers can never do smarter things than those who program them because somehow the intelligence has to be programmed in. It used to be that way, like in the old days when... Uh, Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov in chess, right? That all the intelligence had been programmed in by people who knew how to play chess. But it's not like that anymore. The game of Go is an example of that, right? It is, because there at Google DeepMind, they took 3,000 years of human Go games and Go wisdom, and they threw it all in the trash and ignored it. And they just had this machine learning software called AlphaZero and had it play against itself for 24 hours. And it now beat the best humans on the planet. And not just at Go, but also at chess, by the way. Uh-huh. So this is very much like what's happening also with um, the filter bubbles. Facebook and other companies like Google, they, they, they just unleash these algorithms to look at massive amounts of data and, and to see if they could see patterns. What is Alan Alda more likely to click on if we show him this and that and so on? And very quickly, they started discovering very subtle things that the people who ran even the companies didn't understand where they got so good at selling ads to people and keeping people hooked to their rectangles it works we now live in a world where today people by and large when they're on social media and elsewhere never communicate anymore with people who disagree with them and then no wonder they have such a hard time talking to each other this is striking to me because i thought we were going to be talking about the future dangers of artificial intelligence, when artificial intelligence gets much more able to do what it does, it's already done us in to some extent. That's right. And that, I mean, this is really coming home to me as you talk. That's right. Now, how far can, how far can artificial intelligence go? Some people will say a machine will never have consciousness. And others who say the machines will definitely have consciousness. Does it depend on what your definition of consciousness is? Or is, is there some answer to that question? First of all, 
whether you should worry or not <laughs> has nothing to do with whether the machines are conscious. If you're chased by a heat-seeking missile controlled by some very advanced AI, do you really care about whether this missile has feelings, how it feels, if it has any sort of subjective experience that you might call consciousness, or do you really only care about what that heat-seeking missile does? I, I think it's well, the latter. I, I, I agree with you in general about that, but when I think about it with a little, with some depth, not while I'm being chased by the heat-seeking missile, but when I have a chance to sit in my chair and think about it, it's not such a far-fetched idea that machines can, if they could develop some kind of consciousness and some kind of personality, some kind of set of values that's distinct from the values of the people who got them in motion, that they might not necessarily want to take over, but might start making decisions that are inimical to ours. You know, I was, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you an example, but what, one of the things that worries me is kind of a funny story. I was doing a story for the, for the science show I did uh, on robots, and a robot chased me down the hallway and pushed me up against the wall and was really trying to, really trying to get me, you know. And, and I said to the, uh, to the inventor of the robot, you know, a lot of people are worried about robots taking over. What if you made one that then tried to take over the world? How would you feel about that? And there was this long pause, and he finally said, well, would I win the Nobel Prize? <laughs> Yeah. So I mean, I mean, we're going to get somewhere like that eventually because people want to do it. They want to do what what's the new thing that's possible to do, and how how can we control the process between now and then? Yeah. So there's a, a series of fantastic questions you asked here. Let let me just unpack them so we can answer each one of them. For the consciousness business, I think much of the controversy is that people just can't agree on their definitions. My definition of consciousness is just subjective experience okay when if you're driving a car you're subjectively experiencing colors and sounds and vibrations it feels like something to be you does a self-driving car experience anything or is it like a zombie going through the motions with no one home that to me is the consciousness question uh, it only matters insofar as whether you should feel guilty about turning off your robots and how you treat them uh, it doesn't affect how it, it behaves uh, how the machines behave depend, though, very much on other stuff. <laughs> like, can they make a good model of the world? Can they make a good model of you so that they can act in ways that you, you would consider intelligent? And, and uh, the, oh boy, oh boy, are, are they getting better at that? Uh, so now we get to this other big controversy. Well, will they eventually get smarter than us in some sense? Some people say, no, no, it's never going to happen. <laughs> and... Uh, most people I know who say that, I believe, say it because they feel that there's some. They believe that there's something mysterious about intelligence, so, so that such so that it can only exist in biological organisms like us. I'm a physicist, though I consider myself a blob of, of quarks and electrons. So, from my and it's the same exact kind of quarks, by the way, the up quarks and the down quarks that also make up my laptop and other all the other AI hardware we have. So I believe that intelligence is all about information processing, and it just doesn't matter whether the information is processed by carbon atoms in neurons and brains or by silicon atoms in some tech that we've built. 
And there's absolutely no law of physics, I can tell you that, that says that it's impossible to build more intelligent quark blobs than us. So to me, the, only, the question isn't whether it is possible to have totally superhuman AI, but just whether it, it will happen. Now here again, though, there's great controversy. You have some quite vocal AI researchers like Rodney Brooks, who will say, nah, it won't happen for hundreds of years. Or Andrew Ng, who says it's so unlikely that worrying about it is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. But recent surveys of AI researchers actually have shown that most AI researchers think it is going to happen within a matter of decades. That we're going to have AI that can do basically all cognitive tasks better than humans. And we don't know, of course, who's right, but I think you have to be very careful uh, you know, should, to, to make strong claims about something being impossible when you're up against all these smart scientists and engineers around the world. And we should be open to the possibility that it, yeah, really could happen in our lifetime and make sure that if it happens, it becomes something good, not something bad. When we come back, I float an idea of my own for how we might shape AI to be more good than bad. And I'm surprised and delighted to find out that Max is already working on it. A plan to make what he calls intelligible artificial intelligence. Right after this. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show, bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together, plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. 
but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's patreon.com slash clear and vivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Max Tegmark. I share your enthusiasm for what it what can be done. I also share your concern that it's a good idea to figure out what can go wrong before it goes wrong, because this is such a powerful tool, powerful thing that we're making. Let me take a little step back here. You know, it can be very confusing when you look at AI, because... You might ask, well, what should I worry about? Should I worry about lethal Thomas weapons? Or should I worry about filter bubbles? Or should I worry about someone using AI to hack my Twitter account like happened yesterday? Or should we worry about superintelligence in the future taking over from humanity? It seems like AI sort of comes into almost anything. Why is that? It's because pretty much everything in our society was created with human intelligence, Right. Everything. So if we can amplify our intelligence with machine intelligence, we can also apply it to basically all aspects of our life. That's why the, these things crop up everywhere. But to, so to bring order into this mess, we have to just clearly distinguish the near-term things that are happening now from the longer-term things. You asked me earlier, will machines one day be able to do everything better than us? We have to worry about losing control. yes. You have to worry about that, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. Maybe it'll happen in 30 years. And the first thing we should worry about is not, by the way, the machine taking over the world, but we should worry about who controls those first machines. Think about your least favorite political leader just for a moment. Don't tell me who it is so we can keep this apolitical. But just now imagine that that person is the first to have control over this incredibly intelligent machine so they can impose their will on everyone else. How does that make you feel? Not so good, even if I, it doesn't make me feel so good, even if you're talking about my favorite political leader. <laughs> good. So, so that's all I wanted to say about superintelligence. It, it's, we have a lot of ideas for how we can have things like that from happening, uh, but it might take 30 years to figure out the answers, you know, so we have to work hard on it now. But then there's separately from that, all these very immediate term things, right? Our society is getting so polarized because of AI. And right now, there are people trying to develop these weapons where they'll go, where you can upload the photo of someone and their address and it goes there and assassinates them and self-destructs. These are things that that we can, we're on the verge of now. And uh, my, my attitude to this is if we can't draw any kind of line that we can agree on around the globe between what's unacceptable, then how, we're, who are we kidding if we think we're going to get it right with even more powerful stuff like superintelligence? If we can't even agree that we should never let machines make a life or death decisions, <laughs> we might as well give up and go home. So that's why it's so important to focus on these near-term things, I feel, and get them right. Agreed. And yet, from everything you say, I sense that it's also important to keep ahead of the development so we don't wait for a huge mistake to happen and then not be able to fix it. But what worries me is, unlike most of the other tools, or maybe all of the other tools we've ever invented, this 
in a way, has a mind of its own. It doesn't tell us how it's coming to its decisions. Let me give you a proposal and tell me what's wrong with this. Probably it's already been thought out. Most of my great ideas have already been thought out and turned down. But why can't, for instance, there be a small percentage of the computing power of a machine learning device, a small percentage devoted to keeping track of how it's arriving at its levels of decision-making so it can report back to us what data sets were given priority, which ones weren't, what values were used to prioritize, and are our values being expressed or whose values are being expressed? Is it developing a set of values on its own that it thinks is better than our values? And is that a good idea or a bad idea without knowing what it's doing? That's, in fact, an awesome idea. And I can prove to you that I think that it's awesome because it's very much what we're working on, actually, at MIT, in my, in my group. <laughs> we, call it, okay. we call it intelligible intelligence. The idea that you don't want your AI system to just do smart stuff, but you want to be able to understand why is it doing it. What's kind of happened is we went from programs you wrote ourselves and usually understood pretty well to these so-called artificial neural networks, which can do things much better in ways we have no clue how they do them. And many people seem to have come to this conclusion that we just have to give up on ever understanding how these things work. But I think that's nonsense. I actually think, I think it is quite possible to use tools for machine learning to first take something that works well and then distill out of it information about how it works to the point that you can trust it more as a result. That's why I'm so interested, not only because I came up with the idea you're already working on, but I'm interested in the intelligible artificial intelligence. Can you give me an example of what would be uh, intelligible artificial intelligence. What what concretely have you come up with yet? Yeah, well, let's look at look at problems we've had. Right, sometimes when bad things happen, like hacking, for example, it's because of some actual malice being involved. But very often, it's not malice. You know, like Boeing, they put this clever automated system into the seven three seven Max. There was no malice involved, but they just hadn't understood well enough how it worked. And a lot of people died, and they're very sad about this now, right? Similarly, we had a company down in New York, Knight Capital. They put it, they developed this AI trading system that they thought was very cool. They didn't really understood how, understand how it worked. And then it started losing $10 million per minute and went on for, <laughs> until it had lost $440 million, you know, three quarters of an hour later. And until someone realized, like, unplug this damn thing, you know. You would really want to know how that happened so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. So is there some program that you are close to devising that would give us that information? It's better than that. There is, there's a whole movement, the AI safety movement now, which is a technical research field that started to emerge. Where we... we um, we're very happy to help help kickstart it actually back in, in uh, 2015, thanks to the donation from Elon Musk, the first ever grants program to sort of work on this. And, and now I'm happy that every time I go to an AI conference, there are researchers around the world working specifically on, on these AI safety questions. Like how can you get more guarantees that your system is actually going to do what you want it to do? How can you get more insight? The problem is if you look at the funding, 
the vast majority of the funding is still just going into making things more powerful, not into making them safe. You want to quickly ship things before your competitors do, right? So I'm not saying we should slow down in any way the investments we're making do basic AI research, but we should increase the funding we do, we give to AI safety specifically, so that the power of the AI doesn't grow much faster than the wisdom with which we manage it. I might have missed it. Did you answer what I asked about uh, intelligible artificial intelligence? Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? All right, I'll give you a very nerdy example from a paper we just published in, in, uh, in, in Science Advances uh, in my group. So you, you, you train a neural network to look at videos of something moving. Like we have this rocket moving in according to different laws of physics, for example. And through this, it's black box magical methods. It gets pretty good at predicting it. You look under the hood, and all you see there is a table of a million numbers that tell you absolutely nothing about how it works. But then we developed some, some other AI tools which analyzed this sort of electronic brain in there and would discover all sorts of simplifying structure in it and gradually simplify it down until all that was left was just an equation, a physics equation describing exactly the laws of physics that this rocket moved according to. So that's a nice example of, of um, taking something and making it more intelligible. You know, and you can think of uh, much of science is ultimately being intelligible intelligence. Because if you, if you take Galileo, for example, right, he, he could predict for you if you threw a an apple, exactly the shape in which it would move. He could do that already when he was a little kid and played ball with his, his dad and his friends, I'm sure. But he didn't understand how his brain made the predictions, right? Mm. But then when he got older, he was able to distill out this knowledge into a mathematical equation, y equals x squared, you know, the parabola shape, which gave him a much deeper understanding and he could also communicate with others. And, and when we send the rocket to Mars, right? The reason that we trust that it's really going to get there is not because we've trained the neural network a bunch of times and it learned from trial and error that that was too far to the left, that was too far to the right. No, it's because we actually figured out Newton's laws of gravity and all the other physics we needed. So we could trust that this rocket was going to go there because we actually understood it. And this is the same general strategy, I think we have so many opportunities to do better also in other things. You know, we, we had a big scandal in the U.S. not long ago where this North Point system was deployed in courtrooms across America to re recommend who was going to get probation and who was going to stay in jail. Except that those who made it didn't really understand how it worked again. And later, a ProPublica investigation showed that it was very racially biased and would let, be more likely to tell people to stay in jail if they were black. This is ultimately partly the tech problem, that we scientists have been too lazy and settled for systems we didn't understand instead of, sort of going all the way and insisting that the systems be intelligible so we can trust them not because the CEO says it's great, but because we understand it. I knew I'd be frustrated as we got to the end of the conversation because there's so much more I want to ask you. Let me, let me squeeze this into a minute. You love numbers so much that you take the position 
that math doesn't just describe the universe, it is the universe. Am I right about that? That nature is math. That's right. That's right. It, it sounds entirely nutty when you first hear the idea, because you look at me and you, on Zoom now, and you're like, I don't see any, you know, thing mathematical about what you see, right? If a universe is completely mathematical, it means it has no properties at all except mathematical properties. And what properties do I have? A messy hair that hasn't been cut for four months. Now, that doesn't sound mathematical, right? But if you oh, look it all at has, me, it all has dimensions. There's no doubt about so, that. Yeah. So there, you're, if you look at me like a physicist, exactly, then you start to see, well, okay, this is space here has, what properties does space have? It has the, the property three, the number of dimensions. That's a number. And then you look at me and you see a blob of quarks and electrons and you ask, well, what properties do they have? Well, an electron has the property minus one, one half, and one. And even though we physics nerds have come up with names for those properties, like electric charge and spin and lepton number, we humans were the ones who made up the names. The, the properties that they have, these particles, are just numbers. And so far, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let me, um, let me, let me, because because we are running out of time. But I want to, I want to ask you this question: Words describe nature too, and a writer might say, not only do words describe nature, words are nature. In fact, that's how the Bible starts. In the beginning, was somebody did have that formulation? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So you're saying numbers are God, and the, and somebody else saying no words are God, and it's all the same thing. Well, it's what it is, and you 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 can manipulate it and describe it with numbers. How does that make it numbers itself? I happen to think that the Andromeda galaxy would happily continue to exist, even if we didn't humans didn't exist at all and never made up any words like the word galaxy. And I think it's kind yeah. of arrogant for us to assume that things can only exist if we can talk about them somehow. It's a bit like an ostrich with her head in the sand saying that things that they can't describe, you know, don't exist. (laughs) And uh, if you take that point of view that there really is a physical reality out there, independently of us humans, that has some properties, right? Then those properties have to have, they cannot be just human properties, right? Like words. And if you drill down into it, so far, we really don't have any scientific evidence that that there's any properties of the particles that make us up or the space that they're in that aren't, aren't mathematical properties. The jury's still out. I think the final test of this is to see whether even intelligence and consciousness can be described with math or not, right? Uh, that's why one of the reasons it's so exciting to work on artificial intelligence, to see if that last bastion that's resisted scientific description will fall. It's so great to talk to you. I always have a good time. Before we go, we always do seven quick questions that are roughly about communication, and they invite seven quick answers. Your game? I'm down. All right. What do you wish you really understood? How to help my fellow humans understand that we have such amazing opportunities for a future where we all flourish together if we can just collaborate with one another. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? By pretending that you don't know the answer and and offering to look them up together. 
Oh, that's nice. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Probably this one. Since <laughs> 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 you stumped me. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Pepper them with questions until you get into something that they are generally confused about. (laughs) Okay, let's say you're at a dinner party, you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start a real conversation with that person? I I always go into this as figuring that there is something that they know that I'm really interested in. And then I try to find out what that might be by asking them questions like this. Because that way, once we get into that topic, they will notice that I'm really sincerely interested and the conversation will be great. What gives you confidence? I think the knowledge that if I just step back from whatever is getting me stressed out or down, and spend a little time by myself, I usually float up to the surface like a cork again and, and feel just give, remember that it's pretty amazing. I'm so lucky to get to exist in this universe and have so much opportunity to think about and, and, and do what I want. And then I can go back into the <laughs> calamitous situation, deal with it more confidently. What book changed your life? Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. That's what made me become a, go into physics. This has been great. Thank you so much, Max. Really fun to talk with you again. It's always a pleasure, Alan. And I love how you encourage people to not just communicate with one another, but also relate to one another. And, and yeah. this is really the whole goal behind the, the things we talk, I, I, this project I told you about in the beginning. That's great. Good luck with it. I'll be using it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Max. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Max Tegmark is professor of physics at MIT and principal investigator in the Kavli Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research. He's the author of two books, Our Mathematical Universe and Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. He also has a terrific TED Talk, How to Get Empowered, Not Overpowered by AI. And he has a fun homepage at space.mit.edu. His Twitter handle is at Tegmark. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with science journalist Sharon Begley. 
She tells me about the difficult time she has keeping up with the unprecedented outpouring of research devoted to understanding and controlling the COVID-19 pandemic. By one count, since roughly January, the, the start of the pandemic, although of course it began in China in late 2019, there have been 5,000 preprints alone related to COVID-19. Um, preprints, of course, are the papers that get put up on uh, servers. They have not been peer reviewed. You know, 5,000 just preprints, um, probably a comparable number of papers that have been actually published in journals. That's a fire hose that we're all trying desperately to drink out of. Sharon Begley, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.